Let's pray, and we're going to jump into God's word together. Father, we're thankful for the gift of your church, and we're thankful that church is not a time and a place on a Sunday morning. It's, you are not confined to this campus here in Carmel or our Noblesville campus. You're not confined to Genesis Church. Your church has been on the move for the last 2,000 years, spreading the message of the gospel, advancing the message that Jesus has come, he has risen from the dead, and he will come again one day. Would you help us to be faithful at Genesis Church, to do whatever we can do to work together to help people find their way back to you. And so I pray in the weeks to come that you would help us to work this problem together. We're thankful that we're growing and thriving and we pray that that would continue to be the case. Holy Spirit, we pray for your help today as we jump into scripture. As always, we don't just, uh, we're not just inviting you, we, we need you. We need you to illuminate our minds and our hearts so we can hear what you want to say. And when we leave, we leave on mission. We leave understanding that we have a role to play in your kingdom. And so we ask for your help right now. And in all things that we do, Jesus, we want to bring you glory. It's in your name we pray, amen. So I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, but this summer our family got out of town and we went to the hills of Tennessee to get away for a vacation with my siblings and my dad. So 24 of us staying in a cabin up in the mountains. It was great. We were looking forward to it, but there was one thing in particular that I was really excited for my kids to experience. I was excited for them to get to see the mountains for themselves. Because I don't know if you've noticed, we don't have any of those here in central Indiana, just lots of cornfields, right? And so as we were, as we were arriving in Tennessee, we're driving up, I could just, I loved hearing in the backseat, my kids ooing and aahing over the view. Now, this was the view from our back porch. And I'm just going to go ahead and say, it doesn't do it justice. The pictures never do, right? But this is the view that we got to enjoy every single day. And so every day, all 24 of us would make our way out to that patio at some point in time to take in how big and vast and wide this mountain range was that was all around us, 360 degrees. But one morning I was sitting out and I was looking at this view. I was sipping coffee, reading scripture. I was actually thinking ahead to this message in particular. And God used this image to help me understand how a different way that scripture is meant to fit together. Now this summer, we have been traveling through the Old Testament, looking at a series of stories we call sticky stories. They're sticky because they're familiar. They're sticky because the lessons we learn in them tend to stick with us as we go through life. But sometimes those stories, they just seem like they're standalone or they seem weird or obscure. But what God has revealed to me and what I want to share with you is I believe this is a picture of how scripture is meant to fit together. And today we're going to look at some Old Testament prophecies that are like mountain peaks throughout the Old Testament, not standalone. They make a range that help us understand the ancient past. They help us make sense of the chaotic present that we're living in right now. But most importantly, they point us to a prophetic event that all of creation is waiting to see fulfilled. So if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seats or we're gonna have all the verses you need up here on the screens. But in Isaiah 11, we find an Old Testament prophecy that I think is a critical mountain peak prophecy. Maybe you've heard of it before, maybe you haven't. We're gonna get there in a moment, but before we get to it, I wanna take you on a tour of a few other mountain peaks throughout the Old Testament that will help what we see in Isaiah 11 make sense. So we're gonna kind of go through a tour of the mountains in the Old Testament today. We're gonna begin 
with two mountain peaks that I think are very closely related. They take place in the first three chapters of scripture. The first peak is the story of creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learn the details of how God spoke all creation into existence. He said it and it happened. And he placed the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And he created them in his image and likeness to rule and reign over the earth in his place. That was a really good thing. So that's your first mountain peak is creation. But the next mountain peak happens in the very next chapter, Genesis 3. Satan shows up on the scene and he is able to tempt them into sinning against God, to rebelling against God. And God's perfect creation is ruined. This is not the way God intended for it to be. But in the middle of all of that, God shows up and he speaks directly to Satan and makes this promise. In Genesis 3.15, God says this, I'm going to put enmity or hostility, Satan, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And pay attention to this word. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, if this sounds familiar, it should, because this is a passage that we covered back at the beginning of the summer. And it's such an important mountain peak prophecy in the Old Testament because it's the first time that God promises to send a Messiah that is going to come into the world as a man. Notice the word he. It doesn't say she, it, or they. Singular, masculine. He's going to be born of a woman. This man is going to come to the earth. He is going to conquer Satan and death once and for all. And he's going to restore humanity back to the way God intended for it to be. And the rest of the Old Testament, the question is, okay, well then who is he? When's, he? when's he gonna get here? What's he going to be like? And I know that no one likes spoiler alerts, but if you missed out on this one, you missed a big one. For the last 2000 years, all the writers of the New Testament, along with the church followers of Jesus, we all believe that Jesus is the promised he that has been revealed that God promised in Genesis 3.15 and every major mountain peak prophecy points to who Jesus is and why he has come and why he is coming again. So let me take you through another prophecy to show you that all of these things, they point to who Jesus is and why he is coming. The next major mountain peak is found in Genesis chapter 12. We meet an old man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. They are beyond childbearing years. They don't have any children and God makes an amazing three-part promise to them. The first thing he says is, Abraham, I know you don't have a family right now, but I'm gonna give you a family and your future family is gonna grow into a mighty nation. Promise number one. Promise number two, I'm gonna give your family a specific land that will be theirs for all eternity. It's gonna belong to them. And then the third promise in Genesis 12, three, God says this to Abraham. Imagine if God said this to you, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. Now let's ask a question. How could all peoples on earth be blessed through this man named Abraham? Well, if you don't know this, Abraham was a Hebrew. The Hebrews become known as the Jews. And what God is doing is he is predicting the ethnicity of the coming Messiah that he promised a few chapters before in Genesis 3. And then if you fast forward a few hundred more years, God's going to get even more specific the Messiah isn't just going to come from Abraham's family. He sends a man named Samuel, a prophet, to the home of one of Abraham's great, 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 great grandsons. His name is Jesse. You're going to need to remember the name Jesse. We're going to talk about him in a moment. Jesse had eight sons and his youngest son was a boy named David. And so God says, Samuel, I want you to go to Jesse's house 
and you're going to anoint one of his sons to be the next king. And that son was David. Now, several years pass, David becomes the second king of Israel. And while he is ruling and reigning as king, God made a promise to David that is a prominent mountain peak in the Old Testament. This is what God says to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. In other words, David, you're gonna die. And at some point in the future, after you die, God says, I'm gonna raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now pay attention to verses 13 and 16. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever or as Squints would say, forever, right? You, you get this reference, forever. God repeats the word forever three times. He's trying to get David's attention. He's saying, hey, one of your future descendants isn't just gonna be a king. He's going to rule and reign for eternity. Okay, let's hit pause. That's a lot of information. So let's look at the picture of this, these mountains and let's see how they start to fit together. I want you to look at the closest mountain range, the one that's closest to us, or the closest mountain. That represents the story of creation. God created mankind in his image and likeness. Now go out to the next mountain peak. That's the, the story of the fall of man. It's part of the story. There's a valley in between there. And then you move out, you go across the valley and you'll see that next peak out, it's, that's Genesis 12. That's the promise God made to Abraham. And you go out to the next peak, that's 2 Samuel 7, the promise that God made to David. And there's all these other mountain peak prophecies throughout the Old Testament that tell us God is aware He's going to send a Messiah who will restore creation. He's going to send him a king who will rule and reign, not just over Israel, but over all creation. Now, I realize as we're talking about this, you're probably thinking, okay, I, I know this, but why does all of this matter? Well, by the time you get to Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah begins to talk about what this future Messiah King is going to be like in great detail. Look at Isaiah 11, verse one. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now remember Jesse, who was Jesse? He's David's father. And so Isaiah says, I want you to think back to Jesse. Why would he mention Jesse instead of his son, who was the royal king? Well, before this, right before this in Isaiah, God also made a prophecy. He was speaking to the leaders of Israel and he said, I'm going to wipe all of you out like mighty trees. I'm gonna cut you all down and there's just gonna be a, a field of stumps. But out of one of those stumps, a shoot is going to rise up. And so when Isaiah refers to, the, to Jesse, he's refer, referring to a humble beginning, not a royal beginning, but a, a humble beginning. It'll be a new reset for Israel. And this new king that's going to come up, he's going to be a king that would lead in humility. And listen to how he's described in verse two. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So verse one talks about a tender shoot coming up from a dead stump. But here in verse two, we learn this isn't an accident. 
This is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And Isaiah is letting us know that the Messiah King is not going to rule and reign in his own power. He's not going to be calling the shots on his own. He's going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And then he goes on and he lists several attributes of the Holy Spirit that will be on display in this new Messiah King. He says he is going to have perfect wisdom in understanding all things. He's going to be able to provide flawless counsel in every situation. He'll have a spirit of might to do whatever he desires in order to, in order to carry out the perfect will of God. He's going to be empowered with an all-encompassing spirit of knowledge to make faultless decisions. And he's going to have a spirit of the fear of the Lord, meaning that all, in all of his power and glory and might, this coming Messiah King would willingly humble himself in submission to God as his heavenly father in respect and in honor and in glory. So clearly Isaiah is not talking about a normal type of human king here. He is talking about a king that is unlike any king that has ever lived on planet earth. Now, when you read through the New Testament, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we discover is that when Jesus arrived, he fulfilled all of these prophecies perfectly, but specifically in regards to his relationship with the Holy Spirit. The gospels of Matthew and Luke tell us that something specific happened when Jesus was baptized. Look at Luke 3.21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You know what's fascinating about this passage? The Trinity is there together. The Son is being baptized, the Spirit is coming upon him, and the Father is speaking from heaven saying, you are my Son. And then look at Luke 4.1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke says Jesus was filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. This is Luke's way of saying, this is undeniable proof that Jesus and Jesus alone is the long-awaited Messiah King. Now, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, okay, Jerry, I'm still waiting for you to tell me something I don't know. Because all of this information is the reason that we gather together on a Sunday morning to worship Jesus. We believe he's the Messiah. So we gather and we sing to him. And we believe he's the Messiah. So we gather on Christmas to celebrate his, his birth. And we believe he's the Messiah. So we gather on Easter to celebrate his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But here's what I want you to see today. As important and amazing and miraculous as Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection and birth are to the story of our, our salvation, it's not the end of the story. God's story is continuing on. And there is a, there's a promise that God made in scripture that we're still longing to see fulfilled. And maybe this is the best way for us to grasp this. Look back at the picture of the mountains. I want you to look at that mountain way off in the distance. The tall one, it's really far away. It's faded. This represents a promise that God has made that we're waiting to see fulfilled. This represents a promise that humanity in creation is yearning to see fulfilled. And it's a promise that Isaiah speaks about in great detail. Now I'm going to read for you Isaiah 11, beginning in verse three, I'm going to read a long passage of scripture. And I just want you to pay attention to the world that Isaiah is describing. Referring to the Messiah, he says, and he, 
The Messiah will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. And with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Now that's a lot of beautiful poetic language that Isaiah uses, but here's the question. Does that describe the world that you and I are living in right now? Where the lamb and the wolf lie down together? Are we living in a world where you don't have to worry about the safety of your children and grandchildren? What they see, what they hear, and what might be done to them? Are we living in a world where the perfect righteousness of God is being pursued by all mankind and the flawless justice of God is on full display against the wickedness of the world? Isaiah's description of the world is the opposite of the world that we live in. I mean, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but our world is losing its mind. And just about the time you think you've seen the scariest, strangest, weirdest thing, all you have to do is wait for five more minutes and then the next thing happens. And we're anxious, we're nervous, we're afraid. But here's the really good news. Isaiah is not describing the world that we're living in right now. He is describing what the world's going to be like, the day, the moment that Jesus returns once and for all from heaven and sets foot on planet earth to restore God's righteous rule here on the earth. Now, I don't know if you heard the big news, but a couple of weeks ago, Taylor Swift announced that she's coming to Indianapolis next fall, 2024, right? This is big news. Now, I did not hear the news the day that it happened or as it was happening, but I came home and my kids come home from school and they like walk through the doors and like, Taylor Swift's coming to Indianapolis. <laughs> They're not even big Swifties, but they knew. And that night we hosted our small group and all these 20, 20 somethings are in our home and they're like, did you hear that Taylor Swift is coming to town? And they're like super excited. And you've probably met somebody that has already bought tickets to go to the show and they're so excited. They can't shake it off. <laughs> they're losing their mind. You caught that. Okay, I was wondering how that was gonna go over this morning, right? They gotta shake it off. Now, here's my point. Here's my point. Taylor Swift coming to town is a big deal. It's like revitalizing economies. People are excited. But, but I want you to hear how Isaiah describes the return of Jesus to the earth. Isaiah 11:10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Isaiah says, when Jesus returns to the earth, when the Messiah King returns to the earth, it's not gonna be in one place at one time. Everyone everywhere will know in the moment and things will change in an instant because God's righteous rule that we're longing for will become a reality. And part of this righteous rule includes him defeating sin and death 
once and for all, which is actually another prophecy that Isaiah makes much later in his, in his writings. I want you to listen to how Isaiah describes the coming of the Messiah in Isaiah 53. He says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. God predicted that the Messiah would come. He would be born of the royal line of David. But what we see is that when he was born, he was kind of off the radar. He was born to poor peasant parents. And Jesus' life was known for poverty, rejection, and suffering, just as Isaiah predicted. Look at Isaiah 53, 9. I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. This is a fascinating passage because it was written roughly 700 years before Jesus walked the earth and about 300 years before crucifixion was invented. And yet when you read in the gospel accounts, we learn that Jesus perfectly fulfilled this prophecy by stretching out his hands and he was nailed to a cross. He was pierced for our sins. Listen to Isaiah 53, nine. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in him. Isaiah predicted that, predicted that the Messiah would be killed with the wicked. The, Messiah, uh, the gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Isaiah says he'll be buried with the rich. And sure enough, the gospels tell us that there was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea who had been following Jesus from a distance. And he said, you can lay his dead body in my tomb. Isaiah predicted all of this 700 years before. Look at Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He speaks about the reality that God, the promised Messiah would be crushed for our sins, crushed and killed for our iniquities. But listen to this in verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Isaiah predicted the Messiah's death, but he also predicts the Messiah's resurrection in order to put God's plan of salvation on display. And listen to Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, God says, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for their transgressions. Isaiah 11 talks about a ruling and reigning king that we're all waiting for. But then later Isaiah says, but actually before that happens, he's gonna have to come as God's suffering servant. And he's gonna die for the sins of mankind so that anyone who would put their trust and faith in him would be forgiven of their sins. And they would be ready for his return when he comes to rule and reign as God's Messiah King. And this is where the story gets sticky because that's the message of the gospel in the New Testament. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has fulfilled all these prophecies. He was born of a woman. He was born of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born into Abraham's family. He was born in the family line of David. He suffered on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He died. He rose again and we're waiting for him to return. The message of the gospel is that he has come once and he will return again. But in the meantime, while we wait, we have an opportunity 
to be forgiven and to live on mission for the king that we're waiting to return to this earth. And we do not wait in fear. We wait in hope. We're not meant to hide our faith in the coming king. We're meant to live it out and put it on display because we live in a world that feels like it's just sinking deeper into a pit, but we're not in a pit. We're in a valley that is leading to a peak when the Messiah's feet is going to touch planet earth. And 15 seconds into that, guess what? The past is the past. The future is eternity. Now we get caught up. It's easy for us to get caught up on the how and the when and the where. How's it all gonna happen? By my personal study, the word that I see in the New Testament that that describes Jesus' return the most is just the word soon. If you go to the final chapter of scripture, Revelation 22, on three occasions, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am coming soon. Well, how soon is soon? I don't know that that's for me and you to know. It's whenever the father determines that it's time for him to come, but soon sounds soon. And so we have to respond. One of the most pivotal moments in my life was when my future mother-in-law asked me a question I'll never forget. We were sitting in their living room. She was getting to know me. Who's this guy that's dating my daughter? And she said, hey, Jerry, what do you believe about the return of Jesus? Now, I grew up in a good home. I grew up going to church. I grew up and I was taught there's one God in heaven, that he's got one son, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay for my sins. I knew all of that. But when my future mother-in-law said, what do you believe about the return of Jesus? I realized she knew Jesus in a way that I did not know. I had never thought of his return. And the Holy Spirit in that moment, this is the thought he gave me. Jerry, if he comes right now, you're not ready. She is, she knows him. She didn't just know about him. And and it motivated me very shortly thereafter to confess my sinfulness against God, to receive the gift of Jesus on my behalf. And my life has been forever changed because of it. And so I just wanna do the same thing for you that my mother-in-law did for me. What do you believe about Jesus's return? Not the when and the where and the how, but are you ready? Because if you're ready, you should live like you're ready. We should let people know he's coming because we don't live in fear, we live in hope. And how do you know you're ready? You're ready if you have placed your faith in him, if you have confessed your sinfulness and you are trusting in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and you're looking forward to the future, you're ready. He'll be here soon. Go and share that message. But if you have never surrendered to Jesus, if you have never verbalized out loud to anyone, I am a sinner. I have damaged my relationship with God. If you have never placed your faith in Jesus's death on your behalf, I think you're, I think you're, you're living dangerously. That's a gamble. Because the moment that he returns, Jesus's words, not mine, he will sift people into two categories. Those that knew him and trusted him and those that rejected him. Those that know him and love him and trusted him. He says, congratulations, you get to enjoy eternity with me. But to those that that don't, they're cast away from his presence in hell. And it's not because Jesus is a jerk. It's because he's just. They didn't want him now. They're not gonna want him then. Those are his words, not mine. This is what makes our faith so important and so valuable. We have got to share that message with the people around us. He could come at any time 
and we are called to be prepared. So as we wrap up, I've asked our worship team to sing a song over us. I don't know if you know this song. You can, you can stand and sing at some point if you want, but as we begin, I would encourage you to just close your eyes and listen to the words. It speaks about the return of Jesus to this earth, how great and glorious it's going to be. And take a moment and ask the Holy Spirit, will you use me to make this message known around the world? If you've not yet responded to Jesus, I'd invite you to come and find me after service. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your word, the beauty of your word. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. You have made promises all along the way to send a Messiah. And Jesus, we are waiting for you to return. We are waiting for you to bring the healing and the restoration that has been promised. And we need you. We need you in ways we don't even know that we need you. So would you help those of us that have confessed our faith in you to live and let people know the King is coming soon. We lift our hearts to you. Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you speak to us right now? Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.